On Rare is a podcast developed by Bridge Buyer. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Bio Pharma. Now we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to On Rare. A rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that works on developing treatments for rare diseases. At OnRare, we explore what it's really like to live with a rare disease. Not only do we get to learn a little bit about the science of a rare condition, but we also get to hear from people living with these challenging conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorick, a member of the patient advocacy team, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy. Today, we're talking with Jihan wife and mother of three daughters, two of whom live with a rare condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. CAH affects the adrenal glands, two tiny walnut-sized organs which rest on top of the kidneys. While the adrenal glands are small, they produce really critical hormones that regulate stress, sodium and potassium levels, as well as sex hormones that are important for both males and females. Hi, David. Thanks, Mandy. Before we talk to Jihan, I'd like to introduce my friend and colleague, the Chief Medical Officer for Gene Therapy at BridgeBio, Adam Shaywitz, who's going to give us some medical and scientific background so we understand congenital adrenal hyperplasia better. Hi, Adam. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure, and we're really happy to have you. What is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which I think we should just call CAH? What is CAH? Sure. So CAH is a genetic disorder caused by problems in the adrenal gland required for the production of cortisol and aldosterone, critical hormones. They're really responsible for keeping you alive. They help keep your blood pressure up by keeping salt in your body. They prevent you from becoming hypoglycemic. They play a critical role in allowing your body to respond to stress. So the ability to make cortisol and aldosterone at the right time and in the right amount is really essential for your body to function properly. So this is a genetic deficiency. Um, it's inherited in an autosomal recessive manner, which means that you need to get two defective copies of the gene, one copy from their mother and one copy from their father, both of which are not functioning properly. And so there's really a one in four chance or 25% chance that a baby will be born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia due to 21 hydroxylase deficiency. So Adam, just to make sure I understand, in order to develop CH, you need to have each of your parents to be a carrier for CH, and that even when both parents are a carrier, there's still only a 25% chance for any pregnancy that the child will have CH. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right, David. Okay. And when the child does have CH, that gene doesn't function correctly in terms of not producing the enzymes that are responsible for the body to produce cortisone and aldosterone. Do I have that right? Yes, that's exactly right, David. And when people with CH talk about the medication they're taking, which is, you correct me if I'm wrong, but which is to replace the cortisol and aldosterone. Sure. So the hormone that the body normally makes 
for cortisol is hydrocortisone. So if someone is taking hydrocortisone, they are essentially taking cortisol. You may hear prednisone basically replaces cortisol. You can take that generally once a day. Hydrocortisone has a shorter half-life in your body. So generally people take it or need to take it Mm -hmm. multiple times a day. There is also a longer acting form of cortisol called dexamethasone that is also slightly different, but can be used to replace their cortisol. Many people with CH also need to take a form of aldosterone, another Mm -hmm. critical hormone made in the adrenal gland. Uh, Aldosterone is critical to pull salt back in your body and salt keeps your blood pressure high. Um, So people who can't make aldosterone will lose salt. These people are known as salt wasters, um, and that will cause the blood pressure to drop. Um, Now, people with CH will sometimes refer to an injection that they need to take when they're ill or something happens, and the name of that is uh, Solucortef. And I wonder if you could just tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so that's stress dose steroids, and that is a way of getting a lot of cortisol into your body very, very quickly. If you're getting sick and you can't make the amount of cortisol that your body would normally need to respond to this sickness or stress, then you could get even sicker. I see. Um, I've heard people with CH talk about concerns about having an adrenal crisis, and I wonder if you would tell us what that is. Sure. So an adrenal crisis is really when you need a lot of cortisol or aldosterone and you can't make it. So it's generally brought about by some external stress like uh, sickness or you know a viral illness or an infection. And if someone doesn't have a problem with their adrenal gland, you'd be able to mount a response. Your adrenal gland would sense there's an infection and would make more aldosterone and or cortisol, and that would help your body not get sicker. But when you can't mount that response, you're at risk of blood pressure becoming low, blood sugar becoming low. An adrenal crisis is actually life-threatening. So on the one hand, a person with CAH can take some form of cortisol and aldosterone and, you know, you're doing okay, but it sounds like the current treatment is really not good enough because your own adrenal gland can't produce more on its own. That, yes. Mm -hmm. There's three main problems that are associated with CAH. Two of those are related to the disease itself. And one of them is related to the treatment. So adrenal crises, unfortunately, there is not necessarily the awareness of adrenal insufficiency or not have stress dose steroids available. So people still actually die of adrenal crises, which is really something that should not be happening in 2022. There's also another problem. People with CH wind up making very high levels of sex hormones like androgens, things that are like testosterone and can cause masculinization. And that can have a lot of problems in childhood. Having androgens that are too high can cause problems with sexual development, height, and can also cause problems as you get older. So women in particular are very sensitive to the signs of hyperandrogenism. Um, Hirsutism can cause problems with the menstrual cycle and result in subfertility. Men can also have problems with fertility as well. We're lucky right now in 2022 that we have drugs that can treat CAH. And these drugs were discovered 
over 70 years ago in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are cortisol replacements. But the problem is that even though we can prevent adrenal crises and we can allow a lot of these kids that would have died mm-hmm. to now live productive lives, but when we give people with CAH cortisol in the form of medication, aldosterone form of medication, mm-hmm. we wind up either overshooting or undershooting. It's really impossible to get that seesaw perfectly balanced. So we often wind up giving too much cortisol and that causes problems. People get brittle bones, taking high levels of cortisol for too long can cause high blood pressure, can cause weight gain, diabetes. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a, a sort of trying to thread that needle, which is almost impossible you know, ideally the treatment would be a way to get the body to make cortisol and aldosterone at the right time and at the right amount. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Adam. This has given us a lot to think about and uh, really helps prepare us for our conversation with Jihan. So thank you. This has been enormously helpful. Sure, David. It's been my pleasure. I'm so pleased to introduce Jihan. Jihan, how are you today? I'm doing well, David. Thank you. I've had the pleasure to meet Jihan's family. You have two daughters, Isabella and Alessia, who have CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and they are the oldest and youngest, and Giadana in the middle does not have CAH. But I think we should start at the very beginning with Isabella. Just walk us through what the experience was, if you would. Okay, well, as most parents of children with CAH, your firstborn, you never know that they have CAH. It's always a surprise. So my pregnancy with Isabella, we call her Bella. um, My pregnancy with her was actually my best out of the three. I was (laughs) teaching fourth grade at the time. So I had like 35 fourth graders at that time, you know, going up the stairs to my classroom. It was a great pregnancy. Uh, I had a previous issue, nothing major. But they told me that it had to be a C-section, and I had the C-section. Everything was going perfectly Mm -hmm. during pre-op. We thought that we were having a healthy child. Mm -hmm. One of the techs mentioned during the ultrasound that her genitalia was maybe a little swollen, Mm -hmm. but there really wasn't anything that concerned them. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, going back to the Mm C-section, they had to kind of like sedate Mm -hmm. me because he wasn't able to take her out. So my blood pressure started going down. My heart rate started going up. I started having chest pains and I told my husband, you know, I'm having chest pains. I'm not feeling well. Something's wrong. A few minutes later, I woke up and she was already out and I stare at my left and I see the nurses kind of like whispering and I see them staring at the doctor and they just keep staring at each other and whispering. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, what, what's wrong? The next thing I remember is then waking up in the room, you know, and the baby obviously not with me in the room. That's the whole story of the actual birth. So sorry to hear that was so traumatic. And you woke up just to see that in the eyes of the healthcare providers, that there was something unexpected. And that's got to be so hard. Yeah, it was very traumatizing. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one that has gone through this. I've spoken through so many moms throughout the years. Um, usually the first one is very similar to what I experienced because the health professionals are not uh-huh. 
yeah. aware of it. Now, nowadays it is a little bit easier. The endocrinologists, the OBs are a little bit more yeah. knowledgeable in terms of CAH. Yeah. So yeah. I think it was more when you speak to the parents that had kids with CAH mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, and obviously even before that. That was very common back then. We are interested, very interested in hearing, you know, what happens next. So you wake up in the hospital room, the baby is not with you. What happened next? After that, it was, um, that was the other traumatizing part of that experience. So I had my family in the room. Mm -hmm. My husband told me what had happened. Then my mom told me that there was something wrong with the baby. I'm just panicking at this point. If you see the pictures of me um, during that time, I'm just like swollen of crying. Of It was traumatic. Mm. So I had the neonatologist come in. She was the first one. She was not very tactful in the way that she expressed the situation. Then I remember an endocrinologist that was there, but the person that I remember the most, and I thank him to this day, is um, the urologist. Mm -hmm. He actually came from the children's hospital to come visit me, yeah. to actually explain to me what the situation was. And we actually see this doctor to this day. So he's our pediatric urologist for the last 15 years. Mm. Like I said, to this day, I'm very thankful for him because he was able to tell us a little bit more about what we were going to go through, you know, in mm. terms of later on the surgeries and all that stuff. And that's about it in terms of mm -hmm. that. It was just yeah. a lot of crying and a lot of trying to understand one last thing that was the mm -hmm. most traumatizing out of everything was when they brought her to the room in the little bassinet, yeah. Yeah. they did not put a pink yeah. sign in her yeah. bassinet. They put a gray sign. So that to this day, just. So may I ask a question? Yes, go ahead. Oh, I'm also a mother, so I'm just sitting here. I can only imagine and appreciate yeah. how terrifying that must have been for you laying in that bed and not seeing your child. So I'm just curious. So you, they brought you back to the room, but when did you get to see your baby? They brought her in, you know, once all the professionals came to speak to me, they... But that was the first time you saw your child after you delivered her. That was the first time. Yeah. They brought her in that bassinet. Usually they'll put baby girl and your last name. They just put baby and the last name on a gray sign. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. Thank you. How did you learn that there was something different about uh, Bella? Eventually they explained to me that it was an adrenal disorder. And again, I really didn't know much about any of this. The funny thing is I started teaching fifth grade the following year after I had her and I taught science. So then I started learning about the, um, the endocrine system and I was like, Oh, you know, so I started like, as I was teaching my students, I was kind of like learning it myself. I really did not understand it at first. This was back in 2007. I, as I was mm -hmm. telling Amy last week, I did not have social mm -hmm. media in 2007. So yeah. I just knew whatever they were telling me. Amy, being Amy Brooks, our wonderful producer of this podcast, she sets up a, a tech checkup with our interviewees. And it sounds like you had a really nice conversation, Jihan, when that happened. So. Yes. so it sounds like the pediatric urologist 
really explained this to you yes. in a way that you not only recall, but you really stayed with this urologist. So what, what did the pediatric urologist tell you while you were there still in the hospital? He put it in basic terms, um, the fact that her genitalia was a little bit different than a normal girl's, you know, that she would need surgery later on if we wanted to go that path. I was very groggy at that time. Remember, this was during the parade of the professionals. So he kept it kind of like short and sweet. After that, we kind of just tried to be parents to her. We had the family. Um, she obviously, obviously has to stay in the, in the NICU. I got discharged and she stayed. Uh, she also presented with some jaundice like most babies do. Uh, and then she started getting treated mm -hmm. with the hydrocortisone and the fludrocortisone. Yeah. Now, we had an endocrinologist during mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. He basically just told us what the condition was, here are the meds, you can go home. And we yeah. went home. Yeah. About two mm -hmm. weeks later, we got a call from another endocrinologist. She had seen the newborn screening and she goes, listen, I'm Dr. Mm -hmm. Carrillo, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. You need to go to the hospital right now. You know, you, you should not be home. So she was two weeks old. She wow. was gray. We had no idea what we were doing. We really, really had no clue what we were doing. We took her to Jackson and that's where we met Dr. Carrillo for the first time, which is our current endocrinologist. And we were there for almost a week just trying to get everything going and, and seeing, you know, how mm -hmm. we could actually get her stable at that time. That's the beginning. Imagine, you know, your first two weeks and driving to hospitals. You know, I couldn't really rest at that time. Those were the first two weeks of her life. A two-week delay after a newborn mm -hmm. screen is two weeks too much, right? Like, mm -hmm. there should have been more information and more certainty provided to you and your family much sooner than two weeks after I was born. Exactly. Yeah. Jihan, you described traumatic events in the first two weeks of Bella's life. Just the parade of healthcare providers and their faces and they're not telling you. Then the being sent home without adequate instructions, it sounds like you should not have been sent home with Bella because she needed to be stabilized on her replacement steroids. And I just want to go back to something. The way that the healthcare providers in the hospital where Bella was born knew she had CAH was because she was born with ambiguous genitalia. Is that right? Yes. So it was before the newborn screening information came through, but they identified it as an aspect of CAH. I think that's important. And the other thing, I am so grateful that the pediatric urologist said, your little girl has this condition, you may choose to have surgery later, that there was no question about who she was and clarified that for you since the gray sign in her bassinet. You know, Mandy and I have both been healthcare providers and it just sounds like you and your family were really mistreated during those days. Oh, I just think of like, I can imagine like that gray sign was just almost like reflective of like the uncertainty that you yeah. were about to face. Right. And it was, and the, yeah. the lack of clarity and the mm -hmm. lack of guidance yeah. that you were getting from these healthcare providers that were supposed to be exactly. providing support and care to you and your, your daughter. It was, it was, it was a very terrible time. That's why I get choked up whenever I speak, especially about that gray sign. That gray sign always gets me. <laughs> It could have been kinder to you. Exactly. All that whispering, all the looks like that's usually, and again, you know, 
that was very common back then. I speak to all these moms, you know, that I still keep in contact with, you know, and, and we all had a very similar experience where it was just these stares and these whispers, like, because they're looking at the baby and they had no idea what was going on. Like, why does the child look like this? Because CAH is a rare disorder. So I, I do understand to a point, but they could have been more professional. Yeah, they didn't have to act the way that they did. I obviously left that OB. <laughs> I, I left that OB after that. <laughs> I, I, never, I, I never saw that person. I'm also again. struck by the gray sign in the bassinet and that Bella was kind of gray colored after you brought her home because her medication wasn't stable. and It wasn't. And that's one of the signs of an adrenal crisis. You know, once the child goes gray, you need to run. You know, you either need to inject automatically and, and just run because that, that is a sign that they're going through crisis. So Dr. Carrillo calls you and says, bring, bring Bella into the hospital. You shouldn't be home. So what was that experience like? And what, what did Dr. Carrillo tell you about Bella and CAH? And what did you learn? She explained everything. She explained what the actual disorder was. Uh, she told me to go online and get the CAH book for parents. And I ended up buying two copies and I gave one to my pediatrician. Her blood tests showed her levels, so she was able to give us the correct dosage of the Cortef and of the Florinef at that time, because, you know, they go by different names, but it's, it's the same thing. It's the hydrocortisone and the fludrocortisone. When they're babies, they also have to take sodium chloride, so that's until they eat the solid food. So she gave us the, the sodium chloride mm. as well. That's about it. We just mm-hmm. went home after that week and just took care of her here at home the best that we could. And we just stocked up on everything and just tried to enjoy Mm -hmm. her the best we could now that we had her home and we had her stable. We had good times and then we had bad times because as you all know, you know, as a parent of CH child, just any illness can just make your world, you know, crash down. It can be anything. It can be something as simple Mm -hmm. as a, as a stomach bug or, or fever. So her life has been a lot of ups and downs. Um, we basically lived in the hospital and the pediatrician's office those first few years. Mm-hmm. We tried mm. to make sure that she had a normal childhood. I tried putting her in daycare because obviously I was teaching. We tried so hard and she <laughs> she had a hand sanitizer yeah. like around her neck. I used to buy these like spray sanitizers. Yeah. The yeah. director of the daycare center, um, thankfully, let her join the daycare because I don't know if you guys know, but a lot of daycares don't take kids with CH because of the um, injections and the medications. No, No, I didn't realize that. Thankfully, because I worked a few blocks from the daycare, I spoke to the director and I go, listen, if anything happens, just call me. I'll like run out of school and I'll go over there. And the medication is replacement of the cortisol that a child with CH doesn't produce. So why the injection? Okay, so the injection is the solucortef, and we basically know it as the emergency injection. If the child, for example, has a persistent fever, and that fever you cannot get it down with anything, you need to give the shot. The shot is basically, um, it's a little powder with some with a liquid, and you shake it, and, and you inject it. 
that's one of the things that you can use it for again high fever the other one is vomiting uh that's the one that we've used it most for because obviously if the child is vomiting then they cannot take their oral meds most of the times that we've injected both girls has been because of the vomiting did you have occasion to use the injection during her first years we had an occasion to use it when she was about three and but I was so nervous about using it that I ended up mm-hmm. not using it at that time and just taking her to mm-hmm. um, the emergency room. That's actually something that yeah. I regret yeah. to this day. She ended up oh. having walking pneumonia from the daycare and she was oh. in ICU for three days, unresponsive, unconscious. Oh. Uh, they were doing brain scans and everything because she just wouldn't wake up. I should have, again, like I Mm -hmm. said, I regret not doing the injection, but I had no idea what I was doing. I had never injected anybody in my life. So I thought I did what I needed to do by just taking her to the ER. Mm -hmm. But they apparently didn't know what to do either. So they took Mm -hmm. too long to get her her meds and the IV in. But after that, we've had several occasions Mm -hmm. to administer the injection. In her case, she can't even walk or talk throughout the years Mm -hmm. that's what we've noticed Mm -hmm. so they become gray they can't Mm -hmm. move um so in those situations protocol is administer the injection and go straight to the hospital so that that's what we've done and jihan we've heard from other families that whether it's the an ambulance where you know a child is going into adrenal crisis which means a, a real drop in levels and the need for care and that the ambulance drivers don't have the injection and they won't even give the injection if you're holding it and you go to the emergency room and the emergency room as you describe often doesn't really know how to treat emergencies for children with adrenal insufficiency having adrenal crisis which can be a life-threatening condition as you as you know, only too well. That's exactly what happened when she had the walking pneumonia. I had come from work and she was yeah. unresponsive and I called yeah. 911 and I had the injection with me. But like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. So when the paramedics came in, I gave them the injection and they told me that they couldn't administer it. So that's when I had to like mm-hmm. rush her to my car and drive to the children's hospital because they, they refused to administer the injection. Caring for a, a very young child, any child really with CAH, really puts so much responsibility on parents. Although I know the advocacy organizations are very involved in, sometimes you have to get laws passed or regulations passed to get ambulances allowed to use this. And they have, they have in several states, but here in South Florida, if I'm not mistaken, I think Isabella is one of the very few, Isabella and Alessia, Mm -hmm. the very few uh, kids with CAH down here in South Florida. I joined Facebook in 2009 and I've been uh, contacting parents since 2009. Throughout everybody that I've contacted throughout all these years, there's nobody else down here with kids that have CH. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very hard for me yeah. to try to pass yeah. a law when it's just me down here. <laughs> I've joined a lot of the advocacy groups. I have, you know, but in terms of laws and trying yeah. to do that, we yeah. haven't. So yeah. what I do is I just inject them here at home and we drive to the hospital. Now, one other thing that you mentioned is when um, 
Isabella started daycare, she went with a hand sanitizer around her neck. And I'm guessing you're were trying to prevent her from getting infections. I was just scared of her getting germs. We all know as you know, as parents that daycare is the time where they all get sick. They all even if it's the healthiest child, they will get sick. But a CAH child will not just get sick. They will not just get a cold and go home and be fine. So I was trying to prevent her from, I don't know, in my mind, getting really sick or trying to at least cut some of those germs out. I don't know. I Just my, my mental process, just like during the pandemic that we were all just going crazy with hand sanitizers. Back then, that was my state of mind. How can I help her stay healthy and not get as sick? Yeah. So, you know, she would... Put the hand sanitizer before she ate you know but i had like boxes of those little oh. you know <laughs> spray sanitizers how did you learn who spoke to you about how a child develops ch and why isabella developed ch well uh carrillo basically went through it with us so she explained it to us mm-hmm. the pediatrician also spoke to us about it she's still our pediatrician to this day Uh, my husband and i obviously had to be carriers Mm -hmm. of that gene in order for her to express it and um, when both parents are carriers then the likelihood of a child getting ch is exactly very much increased so i think where we left off we talked about daycare and then she started kindergarten And we had gone through that whole um, walking pneumonia thing. That was the last big illness that she had. And then after that, she actually got very stable. She started doing really well. Um, She started kindergarten at the school where I was teaching. She was stable for a while. She was five years old. And my husband and I started talking about having another child. So during that time, it was her fifth birthday, actually. And we sat down and we're like, you know what? you know, maybe it's time for us to to try to have another child mm-hmm. because we always wanted to have more kids. Yeah. And I got pregnant. I had Giadana yeah. when Isabella yeah. was six. And then six years after Gia came Alessia as a surprise. As a surprise. So my girls are six years apart. Yeah. <laughs> All three. Very, very symmetrical. That was not planned. Giadana was planned. Alessia was not. Now, did any healthcare provider help you or did you see a genetic counselor to sort of understand the possibility? Yes, that was, that's another crazy thing that us as parents with kids that have CH go through. Um, You're considered high risk, obviously, because of that. And then they start asking you if you want to do genetic testing. Um, I am opposed to genetic testing. Uh, not mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with it. At least in my case, I was going to have her anyway. We were mm-hmm. already not okay, no. but mm-hmm. we knew what we were doing with Isabella. So my husband and I felt, you know what, yeah. if Gia comes out with CAH, then I yes. think we'll be even more aware. And we wanted another child. So I refused the genetic testing. The other thing that I refused was... I think it's what it's called, the dexamethasone. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so dex is basically a medication that you can take while you're pregnant. And it helps with the ambiguous genitalia 
And if you end up having a boy, they uh, stop mm-hmm. the medication. But if you have a girl, mm-hmm. then you have to continue. I mm-hmm. read the side effects and yeah. I did not like what I read. It has very, very severe yeah. side effects for the mom. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's not 100% yeah. that as well. But they did, as you asked me, they did talk yeah. to me about the genetic testing and they talked to me about the right. decks and they did explain everything to me. But at the end, I decided that I was just going to have a regular pregnancy like I did with Isabel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by the time you were pregnant with Gia, you already had a lot of experience caring for a child with CAH. Exactly. You knew what you're getting into. You knew that you knew how to do it. You had gone through terrible traumatic times, but you're on the other side of them. And as with anyone having a baby, you were prepared. But thankfully she is, then I learned that the ultrasound is that first sign that the child might have CH. Mm -hmm. So within those six years, I had already read the books. I had read everything. I had been on Facebook and I had already joined a bunch of CH groups. I had already met all these wonderful moms so in my ultrasounds, I'm like, do you guys see anything? Is there anything that I should be worried about? And they're like, listen, we don't see anything. Everything looks mm-hmm. normal. So, and that's basically yeah. what happened. Gio was another C-section, but she was unaffected. We waited for the newborn screening. So you can imagine the waiting for that newborn screening. And it came mm-hmm. back negative. She was healthy. Great. Yeah. There is a chance that she could develop the late onset CH, but she's nine years old right now and we haven't seen any signs. Glad to hear, of course, that Gia is healthy. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about um, Alessia and you said that she was a surprise and just... The wild one. (laughs) The wild one and... (laughs) She's my wild child. It sounds like you kind of discovered you were pregnant without having planned it like you had with Gia. Exactly. So even though initially we had wanted three kids, because we already had Isabela, you know, affected with the CAH and Gia was unaffected, we really didn't want to test fate and try to have another child. And they were already older. Isabela was 12, uh, Gia was six. We started traveling. We started just going on with life. And here comes me getting pregnant. Total surprise. We talked about it as all couples do. And and we thought, you know, what we should do. And at the end, we decided that we were just going to go ahead with the pregnancy. And we did. And again, the same process. Uh, This was not that long ago. This was in 2019. So we had a lot of information. We knew everything. You know, the doctors are the same doctors that we've had since Isabela, like I've mentioned before. I was high risk, but more because of my age, you know, because as women, they think when we're older, we're like high risk or something. But it was more because I was already a little bit older. But the ultrasounds came on and that showed that she was affected. It was, what are you going to do? You know, she's there. Um, it's a girl. We, obviously, my husband wanted a boy. <laughs> She's our third girl. Regular pregnancy. She was wild. I So kicking all night. <laughs> yes. And then you see her in the middle of the night. That child would not stop moving. And I'm like, <laughs> how is this possible? But then you meet her. And now I know. Now we know why. That's it. She was, this time we were extremely prepared. Vast experience with CH get you through. Yes. The biggest problem with her is that she did not want to sleep. That was like the biggest issue with that child. 
you know, they're crying and they're not wanting to sleep. But in terms of the CAH and the birth of Alessia, it's just mm -hmm. night and day, night and day compared to Bella. Mm. Yeah. My yeah. experience yeah. definitely helped. And I'll tell you why the endo that was there with Isabella was the same endo that was there yeah. with Alessia. And I do not like that person. So when I saw him come in, I did not want to hear anything of what he said. So I looked at the dosages mm. and I called Carrillo. That's what I did. There was a nurse there that actually wow. knew a yeah. lot about CAH, thankfully. So we would look at the mm -hmm. dosages together and I would come in while I was there staying at the hospital or my husband would come in because we would take turns and I was still hurting from the C-section. So my, and my husband is as aware mm -hmm. as I am. So we would just talk to the nurse and see how she was doing. Thankfully, everything went well. The only issue that she had was actually feeding. It had nothing to do with her meds. Mm -hmm. um, she was having issues um, actually drinking enough milk and mm -hmm. that's why she stayed. Yeah. But yeah. my backup was yeah. always Dr. Carrillo. Yeah. Whenever I had yeah. a question, I would text her or I would call her or I would email her. And yeah. that's it. So when we went home, we knew what we had yeah. to give her. And regardless, a few days after we got home, I had to take her to the pediatrician mm -hmm. anyway. You know, I took her to the endocrinologist. I took her back to Carrillo. Constantly mm -hmm. at the hospital taking blood tests. You know, with kids with CAH, you have to constantly do blood tests. Those, that first year of their lives, it's just constant pricking, constant in their hands, mm -hmm. in their feet, in their arms. Mm. It's just, you know, I remember with Bella, yeah. even in her head, it's just, it's constant just to make sure that you have enough blood yeah. to test. So, and they're, they're doing the blood tests because they want to check about the levels of the replacement cortisol. The cortisol. And I'm guessing they're also mm -hmm. looking at sodium levels to make sure... And potassium. And potassium. When mm -hmm. they're, yeah, when they're babies, potassium is huge as well. So, Jihan, you have three wonderful daughters. Two of them are living with CAH, although I think it's probably more accurate to say that your entire family is living with CAH. Pretty much. But could you share what it's like to live as part of a family with two daughters with CAH? Um, it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of thinking. It's constantly filling medications. I'm constantly at the pharmacy. It's just a lot of worrying. I'm not too worried about the little one right now because thankfully I'm at home. So she was born a few months before the pandemic. So I decided to leave teaching. I'm still a teacher. I still have my certificate, but I decided to leave and stay home with her because I did not want to expose her to COVID, obviously. But with the oldest, it's just a lot of over planning, a lot of overthinking, um, just making sure that she's taking her meds. And thankfully, she's already 15 years old, so she takes her meds on her own. All I do is refill them. But it's still a worry. You're always worried about if they go, you know, at school, you know, if something happens to her. So at school, she has her 504 plan, like most CH kids mm. do. Mm -hmm. I, she talks to the nurse. There's a nurse there, you know, even in middle school, I was constantly talking to the nurse, you know, with regular kids, you just send them to school. They learn, they come back home and, you know, and it's a regular thing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, make sure that they're feeling okay. Yeah. 
you know, that she's doing well in the morning. Because if she's not mm-hmm. feeling well in the morning, you don't know what's going to happen when she gets to school. And then, you know, it, it's just, again, a lot of overthinking is what I would say as a parent of CH. Yeah. And monitoring. And although it's great that Isabella is managing her own medications, but you still need to make sure that she's okay. She's 15. Um, 15 year olds don't always do things the way their parents prefer. Yes. She's special. She's a very old soul. She's not your normal 15 year old. She's very responsible. She's um, taking classes two years ahead. She's already doing college credits. She's, she's very, very smart, very responsible, very loving, just a very, a very special child. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes living with adversity and long-term illness teaches you a lot of things about life that can be used in other ways. Very true. So um, I guess I would just ask if there's anything else that you think people should know about living with CH or other thoughts you would like to add? Um, Just to those moms that just found out that they have Mm -hmm. a child with CH, my best advice is to treat them as Mm -hmm. a normal child. We never told her, don't do this because you have CH. Don't do that. We would obviously take precautions, but we wouldn't treat her like extra special. I don't, I don't know if you guys understand what I'm saying, but, you know, kind of like, you know, walking on eggshells because she has a condition. Yeah, yeah. They can do any other things. Mm-hmm. She's incredible with computers. You know, she has her friends. It's just a normal thing. It's just you have to incorporate, you know, the medications. Also, try to get in contact with others that have gone through the same thing as you. You know, that's very important. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I'm now talking to other moms Mm -hmm. and trying to guide them through all of this, you know, through the medications, through the surgery. The surgery is the biggest thing that all these moms contact me with, you know, that they're panicking. So reach out as much as you can and get as much Mm -hmm. information as you can. Don't just solely rely on the healthcare professional because yes, they're professionals, they're doctors, but they don't have experience. They don't have the day-to-day with these kids that we do. Yeah. That's really good advice to treat your kids the same way you treat any kids. Also connect to the CH community. You've been helpful to other moms. I hope others have been helpful to you. Yes. Jihan, you've really opened our eyes to what it's like to live with CH, and we're so appreciative of everything that you shared. Uh, We're sorry, again, about the early experiences you had with healthcare, but you're now an expert in CH, so much so that uh, you were able to bring Alessia home very quickly, and you know how to manage it, and they're living with a chronic condition. They need to take care of themselves, they need to take their medication, and you need to keep a close eye on them. But aside from that, they're highly intelligent, very capable, and very beautiful girls. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed being a part of the conversation with Jihan today. Thank you. I think what fascinates me about CAH is that it's an invisible condition. Like these folks, for the most part, function really well on a day-to-day basis, but they do have this ongoing burden of daily medication. And it's the anticipation, right, David? It's that feeling of worry and living on the edge that they may experience an unexpected and potentially fatal adrenal crisis. And that's just terrifying for these families. 
Um, you know, I'm glad you used the term invisible, Mandy, because for most people, it doesn't show on the outside. And if you recall, part one of our podcasts about CAH featured Erica. I think you could say that her CAH is pretty much invisible. But when talking about Bella's early weeks of life, Bella's CAH was anything but invisible. Bella really was not doing well. So when the condition is not well controlled, it is not invisible, and it is very threatening to the life of a person with CH. I completely agree, David. I think that it becomes even more critical that you have a healthcare team that understands CAH in order to manage it, not just at birth, but throughout the lifespan. Jihan's story is really about two very different experiences in healthcare, and Dr. Carrillo may have really saved Bella's life. Thank you, David. And a very special thanks also to Dr. Shaywitz for really helping us understand CH a little bit more. Thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks. To learn more about CAH, please visit AIUnited.org, CaresFoundation.org, or TheMagicFoundation.org. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks for being with us today and join us for our next conversation on RARE. 